0: Okay, so if if you don't know, um, we've been in Judges now for the last uh, couple weeks. This is actually our fifth week in Judges, so if if you're new or or missed a couple, let me just kind of catch you up as to what the book of Judges is about, okay? Um, The story goes like this, and it is the true story of the world. This is how it happens. So whatever worldview you have, understand sitting in church this morning, we're going to hold to a biblical worldview. This is the way we view the world. And the way we understand our story goes like this. Okay. The people of God are rescued out of Egypt because God rescues them. But, but in the midst of being rescued out of Egypt, they're looking for a place to call home because God has called them. He's told them they're going to have this place that is their own, their, 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 promised land as it's called over and over in the book of Genesis. Well, eventually what happens is uh, God uses this guy named Joshua to kind of melee um, uh, this country that's doing incredible wicked acts to take over this land of Canaan. And And what happens is, and the example I gave is essentially the book of Joshua... Ends like the last night of camp, this big hurrah. Yes, I'm gonna say, uh, yes, I'm never gonna sin again. Everything is awesome. And the book of Judges kind of picks up when you came down the hill from camp, right? It's, it's this, I'm never gonna be able to do anything, right? Because what happens is all these tribes, there's 12 tribes who move into the land of Canaan and they're supposed to just remove the Canaanites. But what happens is slowly but surely there's this Canaanization that takes place. That they slowly not just move them out, but they actually start to become like them. And so the story of the book of Judges is God sending someone to help guide them through how to stop being Canaanized, how to stop acting like the people they should be removing and take over the land. And and these people that God uses, they're they're called Judges. That's why the book of Judges is called Judges. And and we've seen some crazy bonkers stories up to this point. I I love to continue to recap the stories that we've seen, Uh, pegs going through people's heads, um, knives going into bellies and getting stuck. Um, I mean, fleeces on the ground, uh, just people for no reason murdering. Like, it's just this, you're, you're looking at you're going, what's going on? Um, and the reason all this craziness has taken place in Judges might be one of the most bizarre books in the Bible is because um, what the framework, the, the, the bookends of what takes place in the book of Judges are kind of two things. One, there is no king. That the idea of there's this judge that God appoints, and we'll talk about that in a second, but there is no ultimate ruler. They don't see God as their ultimate ruler. When they do, they they only do it for a short time, and then they fail. And then the second thing, because of that, they do what's right in their own eyes. So the the, the two ideas that kind of uh, uh, buttress the the, the book of Judges is the fact that there is no king in Israel, and that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so with that, that would kind of carried us through these book of Judges. Now, We're in chapter 10 at this point. Um, Just so you know... Kind of calendar stuff um, i'll finish this out in the next three weeks in the book of judges uh, we, we will uh, celebrate our our, uh, our Sunday the one year anniversary on the twenty eighth and then um, we're going to do some some different stuff through prayer reading and mission specific um, uh, Christian practices of the faith um, and then we we'll, we'll have Easter so just so you kind of understand the calendar I'll, I'll be with us for the next ten weeks but through, through the portion of this you got to hear from Jim and John the, the, the other elders kind of walking us through some of this so if you again have any questions in the background you can go back and listen to any of the sermons so we are in Um, uh, chapter 10, verse 6. Now, before I read this, um, I want to give you something else that we've seen because this might be helpful. And if you've been with us in the book of Judges from the beginning, you've seen this a lot. This is called the cycle of Judges. Now, what we've noticed with the cycle of Judges and every time we've seen it is essentially God sets the people of of God up for success, but they choose sin. And in choosing sin, God gives them over to the people that they they are sinning with and then they become subjugated to those people. And in becoming subjugated, they're serving them, so they're servitude. Now, at that point, supplication happens, which means the people cry out, right? They're in distress, so they cry out to God. And because God, because God is good and gracious, he saves them, right? He saves them through a judge. He saves them through whatever means... Um, possible, And then there's silence again. Then there's this rest. So we just did it with the five S's. So this has been the cycle. Now, if you can actually leave that up there for a while. Here's something interesting that I want to say about this. Because we're halfway through the book of Judges. Um, and this is rarely where we're going to uh, steamroll. And I'll try to get through all the information uh, as quickly as I can. What's interesting about this cycle is every single time we put it up, those of you who are Christian in the room immediately resonate, uh, resonate with that cycle. Like I haven't talked to anyone uh, in the church yet when when we're talking about the cycle that doesn't go, yeah, that cycle is ridiculous. Like I've beaten sin. I don't know what this, this, like these people are. No, everyone goes like I've been there. Like I choose to sin, and because I choose to sin, I feel the pain of the world, and I feel the pain of the world, I go, God, oh man, I'm never going to sin again, I'm so sorry, okay, and then, and then things are good, and then you're never going to sin again, and then what do you do again? You sin, and when you sin again, you feel the brokenness of the world, and feel the brokenness of the world, you pray to God, and you are in that cycle. Now, now let me explain to you why that's happening, okay? The reason you feel that cycle, and I feel that cycle, and the reason the book of Judges is filled with this cycle, is because this is the cycle of the Bible, This is the story of the Bible, that God makes all things good. There is rest, but man chooses sin. And the story over and over, the big narrative from Genesis to Revelation, is God walking us through this gigantic cycle. In the middle of all this, that we're in our sin, and because we're in our sin, where we're in our brokenness, we become a slave to sin, as Romans 6 says. And in becoming a slave to sin, all we have to do is cry out. All we have to do is say, God, save us. And this is exactly what he does in saving us. He doesn't just send some, some timely judge, but he sends Jesus Christ to save us ultimately. And in saving us ultimately, he brings the ultimate rest. This is the story. This is how we know it. Now, now this, this makes, um, you can just leave that cycle up for a while. This makes things really interesting, doesn't it? Because um, what we tend to find then um, in, in us feeling that cycle and, and the Bible being that cycle is there are glimpses where we feel the weight and brokenness of the world now, right right, right now, and yet at the same time we feel the, the, the beauty of, of what God is doing. So, so let me explain it like this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 would say eternity is stored up in your heart. Like you're striving to, to seek and to look and to find something to make you full. Yet at the same time, Romans one eighteen says that your unrighteousness suppresses the truth. So, so let's say you're not a believer in here. You're, you're searching for something. Like everybody's searching for something. You're trying to find this thing that will, will give you peace, will give you ultimate joy. And, and what, what's happening is you can't see it because your unrighteousness is suppressing the truth. The devil is blinding you. Now that may sound crazy, but that's the reality. So, so here you stand in there. And so we see these glimpses of good and bad. Now if you grew up in church... You've read the story of the guys in Judges and the stories of Abraham and Moses um, and and Noah as kind of these superheroes of the faith. The only reason Samson messes up is because of Delilah and and, and all these different things, right? (laughs) But what I've tried to do in the book of Judges is put in front of you, that is not how the Bible paints these pictures. The Bible is putting these guys in front of you, like Hebrews 11, all those men and women in Hebrews 11, which uh, the, the guy we're gonna get to is in Hebrews 11, these great men of faith, is not because they're awesome. It's not because of their uh, faithfulness, it's because of God's faithfulness. And so this is what we've seen, that, that God's using broken people, but God is gracious, God is steadfast, God is full of grace and saving his people despite their brokenness, and that's what we're going to run into. So there's really only two things I I want to do this morning in going through our text because we've got a lot of text to cover. Um, The first thing is I I want you to see God's grace sometimes when we're in that sin, when we're in that brokenness, what does that look like? And the second part is I want us to see this guy, which is a perfect example of that. So um, let's just get right into it. Uh, Judges chapter 10, verse 6. uh, I'm going to start reading from there. And then we will see this cycle. You can leave that cycle up there because we're going to see it right away. This is what it says The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how almost every single, except the first week, that is how every text has started um, for us. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Number one, sin and served the Baals um, and Astaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the uh, Amorites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel for that year. Now that starts that year, and then it continues on for 18 years. They oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which um, is in uh, Gilead. and the Amorites rights crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed verse 10 and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord so we we've, we've seen sin we've seen servitude right they're they're oppressed and then the, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken forsaken our God and have served the Baal. So let's stop real quickly because the only way I can do this gigantic text is to kind of do application as we go. But here's something really interesting about the people of God in this cycle. If we're in this cycle, please hear me. If you feel the weight of that cycle, hear what's taking place with the people of Israel because I think this might help work us out of this cycle. What's amazing about this is that the people of Israel continue to cry out, but they're not crying out because they're truly repentful. They're not crying out because they're sorry. Every single time they cry out, it is because they are oppressed. Almost to put in front of us that you can cry out um, against idolatry in an idolatrous way. Here's what I mean. Um, For for them, comfort or peace or whatever it is, is the God. And Jehovah God is the means to get there. So I I see this a lot with with parents who have teenage kids. I really want my kid to get into church. I know that it will be good for him. Do you hear hear the the bob and weave of what's taking place there? Like what's taking place with the church, the church is a means. Jesus is a means for a better life, for better grades, or better friends for my kid. Jesus isn't the end in that moment. And this is what's happening with the people of Israel. They're not really sorry. They're not feeling the weight of their sin. They're feeling the weight of their oppression. They're feeling the weight of their pain. It's not that they, they want out because they're so broken. They want out because they're feeling the brokenness. Do you understand the difference? Like, like this is a huge thing, man. Because we can go to God and say, "God, if you give me X, then I'll then I'll do Y." But that's that's not the the, the premise the Bible built on, and that's not how Jesus operates. That's just not at all how it is. He is all or nothing. Now it gets interesting because this is um, what happens with God's response. Um, I I think crazy. If you're a parent, you can feel the weight of this. So so they're crying out. They're they're crying out. They're in this cycle but something different. The the cycle actually breaks down here because God is going to do something different, which um, is phenomenal. Verse 11, and the Lord said to uh, the people of Israel, so this is God's response. They cry out, God help us, we're being crushed. Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? And, uh, um, and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines and the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Verse 13. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. So they're crying out. God's response is, I saved you from them, I, but, but you went back to them. Therefore, I will save you no more. Here's his response, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen, let them save you in, their, in your time of distress. So here, here's something I want you to notice probably right away before we get to that last line because that's money, okay? Um, here's here's what, what, what's crazy about this. I want you to notice if you look at verse six and you're gonna have to kind of go be, between verses 11 and 12 and verse six, there, there's something going on, isn't there? That, that here, check it out, God is saying you're being oppressed by certain people. Who are the exact people they're being oppressed by? The people, they chose to serve. The, the, they, so, so here, listen, this is what he says in, in verse 6. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the uh, uh, Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. In verses 11 and 12, specifically 12, listen to what he says. The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the uh, Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me. So, so here's, here's what's crazy. He's basically said this. You've chosen those gods to serve, so feel the weight of serving those gods. So he's saying the punishment for idolatry is idolatry. So this is crazy, right? Because you think of God, and sometimes I think of God as, as this kind of this, this jerk in the sky who wants to pounce on you every time you sin, this active wrath. But the reality is we really only see small glimpses of God's active wrath. More often than not, we actually see God's passive wrath, meaning that he goes, hey, stop, stop, stop. Okay, I, go ahead. See what it's like. See what it's like. And, and, and this is what they're feeling. They're feeling the weight of this. So God is going to go, no, no, you, you want that, that God, then let's see how that God treats you. Now, um, I know the term idolatry, uh, and I want to make sure I want to do this really well because the term idolatry we use a lot, but if you didn't grow up in church or, you know, I know that word can be weird. It's not, we know what the term is, but we don't hear it very often outside of church. So let me just explain specifically how this can even apply to us a little bit, that term idolatry. There's a book uh, by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. I just want to use his working definition of, of idolatry. When we say idolatry, when the people of God are, are, are um, performing idolatry against God, this is um, maybe a way we can think of it. So what he says in, in Counterfeit Gods, I think we have this, um, What is an idol? It is any, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, that you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources and on it without a second thought. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? So here, this is is crazy because um, I continue to use that because everything's crazy. Um, but but here, here's, here's, for us, practically, when we think of what the people of Israel are doing, how they're serving these other gods, why are they doing that? And, and according to Tim Keller's definition, an idol is something, as A.W. Tozer would say, you have a throne on your heart. Anything fighting for that throne What's sitting on? What, what is driving your motivation? What, what is driving your, your cause? What is driving your energy? That, that's going to be the idol if, it, if it's not God. And, and I've run into this a lot. I mean, so those of you who've heard my story, I've, I tried to a, a avoid idolatry so much, um, leaving, like having only one pair of clothes and leaving behind even family in instances and and, and all resources because I only wanted to serve God. And yet idolatry um, was still there. It's still this this thing that I was fighting against. Even now, let me just give you a practical example of what I even struggle with right now. Um, My family. Like, I I think the best question you can ask and I can ask is, how do I know if if I'm in idolatry? How do I know if I have an idol? Here's the best question you can ask. If if God removed that thing, whatever it is, would you be mad at him? Honestly. And I, I think like, I don't know me. I, like I love my kids and that love for my kids isn't wrong. I love my wife and, and that love for my wife isn't wrong. But if I step back and go God if you take them from me I'm not, I'm not cool with that. That's idolatry. That, that's idolatry. That, that's something that I look at. Now listen like my wife is on a, a weekend trip with some girls, and you better believe I'm finding my phone every 10 minutes, um, looking at find my phone, I f- f- where is she at? Because she's at a coffee shop, she hasn't been kidnapped, that's good, okay? Um, now, I, I'm, I'm tracking her, I wanna know where she is, okay? I wanna know where she is, Be- not because I'm like crazy, but because like, I love her. A Little bit of both. A Little bit of both. Hey, where are you? Okay, no, who's that in the background? No. Uh, okay. Don't tell her. <laughs> okay, so so here's 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 my point. Here's my point. I love her. Okay, that's uh just take that from okay. Um, I, I love her and I love my kids, but, but what I have to wrestle with it is if God was to remove those people in my life, like would I be upset? Like would I be a? I, I, he he goes on to say, I, I think phenomenally something that that I think w- would help. He goes on to say this: human hearts. And I don't know if I have this quote up there, but human hearts have not changed. Okay, they still assure us that when an idol leads, to, that an idol leads to slavery. When we need it more than that idol, if someone seeks their value and their per, uh, purpose in a relationship, for example, sacrificing everything to marriage, which then fails, it seems very natural to think. I need to find another relationship. I need a better spouse. We see our problem not as worshiping an idol, but not worshiping an idol enough. Okay, so, so here's, here's how idolatry works. This is what God does. He says, fine, you want to serve those gods? And they say, yes, okay, um, I need rain. Baal, I need rain. And so I sacrifice. I sacrifice the lamb or or I sacrifice my child. Whatever they're doing, they're literally killing this child. They're killing this lamb so that Baal will give them rain. But when Baal doesn't give them rain, they have to sacrifice more. Oh, he's not happy, so I need to give more. And that idol wants more. And he wants more. And he wants more. And it will never be enough. And the, the, the same is true for us. Like you'll never have enough. I, I, I need to work so I can reach this place of uh, uh, financial security, but, but I need more, and I need more. Or to his example, um, as I find a spouse, and, and I'm, I'm broken in that relationship, and maybe not a, a marriage, but you're just dating, right? And, and so that, that didn't work out, but what do you need? You need another relationship. No, it's idolatry. That God is lying to you. He's saying, give me more, give me more, give me more, but it's a lie. That's why, that's why you, you having sex the way that you do in sin is never satisfying enough. That's why. Why? because it constantly wants more. I I thought of a couple examples, um, some I just shared, but I I think could uh, be helpful in some ways. Listen, so um, the person who worships money, this is what, what I just wrote in my notes. If you want to live for money instead of me, this is what I would say God would respond. Then money will ru- rule your life. If you want to live for popularity instead of me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. If you're so desperate to get married that you don't want to trust God, then you'll settle for a husband and uh, uh, a husband or wife. See what that brings you. Here's one that I see constantly in our culture. Um, if you live vicariously through your kid's success, that will eventually close in around you, right? So if you're the dude at the t-ball game, Get to first base, okay? He's, he's, he's six, bro. He's six. Like, he, he learned how to walk like three years ago. Like, if you're that guy, like, because your kid is not performing at a, at a certain level, like, how successful he is, is determines how successful you are, the pompous that you hold. It's idolatry. Your child makes a terrible God. He makes a terrible God. You, you serving that, you, you, you trying to get him there will, will be terrible. That's not Those little souls weren't made for that type of pressure. No one was made for that type of pressure. So, so this is what idols do. And this is what, what, what God has said. You want to choose them, have them. And so he passively allows them to feel the weight of that. Now it's interesting from here because um, we're going to see an example. Let me just finish uh, with this um, verse. Uh, in, in verse 15 it says this. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have... Send, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Here are the caveat: Do whatever you want to us, God. Just please save us from this, this uh, wickedness, right? But anyway, we don't have time for that. Verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So we see these steps, but God is doing this unique thing. Now, now here's what we're gonna see. I, I want the Bible to give us an example of what that looks like. What does it look like when you continue to try to serve God, but mishmash your idols with them. Like that throne is kind of sharing your heart. What does it look like if you continue to hold on to something to so go, no, 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 God, you, I'm, you're, I'm, I'm all in. Just please, please don't take this, please. What does that look like? When those worlds collide, we get to see that in an example of uh, Jephthah. This is uh, what takes place in verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together and they encamped in Mizpah. Verse 18. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Amorites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So this is what happens. Now the uh, Ammonites are are going, okay, it's time to take over. Uh, We have the people of Israel where we want them. Remember, they're being subjugated by him. And the people of Israel gather in this place and they go, hey, um, we need to figure out somebody to lead us, right? Because what's interesting at this point, when the people cry out in the cycle, usually God sends a judge. But he doesn't send a judge here. So the people appoint a judge. So the people do it on their own. We need to find a leader. But usually in our cycle, at this point, God is sending them. So, so no, we're going to figure this out. So, so one, the, the Ammonites are coming to attack Israel. Israel goes, hey, we need a leader. Let's, let's identify that leader. And it's crazy because the people of Israel, in some ways, are, are laying down their foreign gods. They're, they're serving the Lord. But at the same time, they're doing what they want. Right? They are appointing this leader. Continuing on, um, it says this in verse 11. Uh, now, uh, uh, Jephthah, the Gile- Gileadite, was a uh, mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his mother's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob and uh, worthless uh, fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So here's what we have. Hey, we need to find somebody to fight against these guys. They're coming after us. Who can we go? Immediately they go, Jephthah. Now, 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 we get a little background around this guy named Jephthah. Here's, he's, he's raised by uh, his dad because his mom either passed away or whatever it is, but his dad remarries, has more kids. His original mom was actually a prostitute, so he's the son of a prostitute, but now he's a stepbrother to these other guys. These guys go, hey, we don't want you in this house, and they kick him out. And so he kind of leaves, he flees from them, and, and uh, worthless fellows, as the Bible says, surround him. So he's kind of this renegade dude um, who's the son of a prostitute, right? He makes a great kind of villain-type character. Um, and so, so here, here's this Jephthah character, um, but he, he does some good, as, as we'll see. So here's Jephthah, there's Jephthah. It says this in verse 4. Now, after a time, remember, the battle's going on. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead, uh, Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Amorites." But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that's why we have turned to you now, that, that you may go with us to fight against the Ammonites and behead over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they go to Jephthah and say, hey, Jephthah, why don't you be our leader? Jephthah's like, whoa, you kicked me out, remember? It's like, now you want me to be your leader? Like, because you're in trouble? Yes, that's why we're here, Okay. Okay, okay. And then he goes on to say this. Verse nine. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you, bring me, um, if you bring me home again to fight against the Amorites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, "The Lord be uh, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say." Verse eleven. So Jephthah went out with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. So, so immediately they go. Okay, fine. You can be head of us. Just fight this battle. So here we go. The battle's about to go down. How does this take place? Here's Jephthah leading the, uh, the Israel army, going against the Ammonites. This is how, how it happens. Before they even uh, sword against sword, uh, Jephthah, kind of this negotiator, he's figured out, I mean, he, he kind of raised himself. He, he grew up in the hoods. He knows how to take care of himself. And so in doing this, what does he do? Immediately, he's got to negotiate. He's got to figure <laughs> out an angle. And so he sends this messenger to the, the Ammonites and goes, hey, what's the deal? Why, why are we even fighting? Okay, um, and, and this is how that, that plays out. Verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? Verse 13, and the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from uh, the Aaron to the Jabbok. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, to the Jordan there and therefore restore it peacefully. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, dot, 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 this is what happens. So he goes to the Ammonite sends a messenger and says, hey, why are you about to try to like slaughter us? What's going on? And, and, and uh, the Amorites send back this, this message and go, well, remember when you came out of Egypt? Remember, I, I started our service with a story. When you came out of Egypt, well, when you came out of Egypt, you just took over a part of our land. That was not cool. Now, uh, I'm, I'm not going to read all this, but this is what Jephthah's reply is. No, no, no. Let me just give you a quick history lesson. So here's a history lesson that he gives them. The Amorites are upset because they have this land. And they say the people of Israel came in and just plundered them out. And so now they're holding this grudge. But Jephthah says that's actually not what happened. What happened was, as the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they were rescued out of Egypt, they went to you and said, hey, can we cross here? And they said, no. So they they tried to find another way around, no. Another way around, no. Another way around, no. So they came back, and they had no choice. They were going to die there. If they didn't do anything, they were going to die. And so they prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said, go, I will give them into your hand. And so God, in this moment, gives them into, into their hand. He goes there and takes over the land. And so Jephthah's point is simple. Listen, we did what we had to do, you would have done the same thing. Like if you're God's, you would have done the exact same thing. So there's a little history lesson. He clearly knows his history and this is what happens, uh, the response, verse 28, which is hilarious. So if you're looking at your Bible, Jephthah's response is from verse 14 all the way to 27, okay, 13 verses. Here's the Amorites' response. But the king of the Amorites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So so Jephthah goes, hey, no, let me just tell you what the facts are and they go, shut up. <laughs> That, that's all. So, so, so now alright I, I warned you like Cam Newton getting in the ice tank I give you warning right okay you have to see that commercial I don't it doesn't make sense if you haven't um, so verse 29 says this then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead, so he's going to war, and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. This is what Jephthah says. If you will give the Ammonites, these dudes who he's about to go to battle with, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hands. Verse 33, and he Struck them from Erah to the neighborhood. I love neighborhood to the neighborhood of um, Meneth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Kerumim, with a great blow. So the Amorites were subdued before the people of Israel. So let me just explain what happens. Jephthah goes, okay, I tried to I tried to delegate, I tried to negotiate, but you don't want to. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to come at you. Now before he does, he goes to the Lord and says, God, if you will give them into my hands, when I get home, the first thing that comes out of my door. The, my, my house. The first thing that comes running out of my house, I, I, I'll give to you as a burnt offering. Okay. I'll give, the, give them to you as a burnt offering. And so uh, he, he goes down and, and he melees these people. God gives them over his hand, however you want to word it. Okay. So now Jephthah is going to go home and he knows I made a promise. I made a vow. Whatever comes out. I don't care if it's a cow. I don't care if it's a goat. Whatever comes out of my house first to greet me, I will give as a burnt offering. Verse 29. Or I'm sorry. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. So he arrives home after this promise because God gave him the victory. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with a dance. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, saw her he tore his clothes and said, alas, my daughter. Um, this, this becomes... Really fuzzy. This becomes in that brokenness thing that we're talking about, right? Because um, it's clear that Jephthah has no idea who the real God is, Jehovah God. Um, I mean, if he did, he would know that like Deuteronomy 1231, because he goes on in this story to kill his daughter. He makes right on his vow. Long story short, he, he gives it a couple months, but eventually he makes right on his vow and he kills his daughter. And, and that practice is a pagan practice. That that idea of sacrificing your children is never like never put in front of the people of God by Jehovah, like by God. That's that's never there. This is a pig. so he's mixed this idea, and and he furthermore, I mean, right? Isn't this how you deal with idols? If I do this, you will give me this. I mean, that's how you. So so in his mind, though he knows the history, he knows the story. He doesn't know the God of the story. This this is a mixing, a mingling of the two. I, and, and this is where it gets really weird. I, I want to just kind of say on a, a side tangent, Man, I don't know what to do with Jephthah. I mean, it's, it's weird because at one point, you see in verse 29, I believe it is, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. But then at the same time, he's making vows and performing acts that are clearly against the spirit of the Lord. And I, I don't know how to, to walk this out. I, I really don't. Um, I mean, I, I think in our... our Modern time today, if if you're familiar at all with what the prosperity gospel is, right? Um, Like men who are trying to get money, men and women are trying to get money for for their own kingdom. And and yet God uses them. Like I was saved in that tradition. I was saved in a tradition that I would look and go, man, that's like demonic. Like we're told in Matthew 7 that some people will stand before Jesus and they'll go, hey, I don't know you. And they'll go, but I cast out demons. So God in, in this weird way is using means... Using a person, using this thing that, that we go, God, what are you doing? Like, what's going on here? And, and I don't have the full answer. I, I, I can say outright that this is clearly not the way it's supposed to be, but, but I, I would push more into um, how the story ends. Um, because uh, when we do this, though we don't know what to do with Jephthah, he's a clear example of mishing, uh, mishing, mashing God and idols together, and the results are, are pretty despairing, because here's what happens. Um, Jephthah eventually sacrifices his daughter, and um, he starts delegating as the ruler now. Well, these these guys uh, come up to him, the Ephraimites, and they come up to him, who are the people of Israel, and they go, hey, why didn't you call us? We we could have helped you. We could have went to battle with you. And he goes, you didn't come to my aid before. And so what he immediately starts to do is he starts to to slaughter these certain people. And now what's happening with Israel, when they chose to mix foreign gods with God is they turn in on themselves as if the, the, the truth mixed with a lie created a greater lie. That suddenly now they're, they're like, so when you have to come in, they, they're so alike, they're so similar that when they come into the gates, a certain gates, um, it's, it's like Hotel Rwanda. How do you say a certain word? A certain Israel come in and if they don't say that certain uh, word with the right di- a dialect, they just kill them. And so now Israel isn't just fighting foreign armies, they're killing each other. Like during his time, 42,000 people are being killed. This is what happens. Like it, it's just a mess. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But furthermore, to our cycle, he he getting out of that cycle. If God did not provide, if, if this is not not God-driven here, then, then here's what happens. Listen to the last part of our text in verse twenty-eight. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, moving on to to verse thirty-four. Um, actually, you know what, we'll, we'll go because of time, we'll go all the way to verse seven because that's the end of that, that, story. Verse seven says, this, this is the last uh, verse for our, our, our text. Um, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, Gileadite died and was buried in the city in Gilead. So here, why is that weird? Why would I just share that last verse to close our time together? Um, because in the cycle, what has happened every single time is if you're in sin and you truly repent and truly trust God, he will truly save you. And when he truly saves you, over and over, what we have seen at the end of every judge, Othniel, uh, uh, Gideon, whoever it is, at the end of their text, what does it say? And there was rest. But at the end of his time, at at the end of Japheth's time, there is no rest. There's no peace. Um, There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis who talks um, and warns us about doing this, about um, trying to find rest and trying to find peace on our own. Trying to, to, to do this, hey, I can serve Jesus Christ. I'm in, but I have this idol. I have this thing that's gonna turn on you at any moment. But but you hold fast to it. I'm I'm su- I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian. I like I I hold to the American standard of family. Okay, so like we miss all these things together and we find no rest. But that's what we were hoping for. Like whether we would say it outright or not, we're hoping for rest. And C.S. Lewis talks about what we need to do in this moment um, in a f- great book that explains, I think, idols in general. Um, Good idols, idols of beauty, how they turn in on you. And art, how they can turn in on you. And family, how they can turn in on you. Um, But this is what he says in, in his book, The Great Divorce. I do not think that all who choose wrong roads perish, but their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. A sum can be made right, but only by going back till you find the air and working it afresh from that point. Never by simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The spell must be unwound bit by bit with backward mutters and deserving power. Deserve, yeah, as des- des- a very, we'll just, I'll just make that, forget that word, um, okay? <laughs> so so he, here's, here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. They're, they're, you're trying to walk out this path and immediately what goes in my mind is like a coder. I don't know a lot about computer coding, but if I'm coding, right, and I make an error in coding, I'm just like, well, I made that error and it will, go, like, it will fix itself. No, it won't. No, like that, that code is gonna mess you up somewhere along the way. This is, this is the hard part of, of mixing these. You can't just go like, well, I got 90% water and just 10% of Coke, right? Like, no, no, like it's either all or nothing. This is, this is what Jesus put in front of us. So I'll, I'll finish with the gospel because here's the beauty of this. Um, the story is that cycle. But listen, I, I can't say this enough. Every single time we end our time together, I need to put this in front of you. It is only through Jesus that you will find that rest. What's crazy to me is, is Jesus loves you enough, he loves me enough to hate that idol. He hates that idol more than you hate that idol. He hates that idol so much to take a step back and go, fine, feel the weight of that. Because maybe for a moment, like a good dad, right? Like, buddy, like I've been there. Don't touch the outlet. I'm telling you, do not touch it. I'll put a plug on it. Six months old, Corbin, don't do it. Pulls the plug off. I'm telling you, if you touch it, right? Smack his hand. What's he do? What do you think he does, right? But he never touched it again. Like, you, you want to know what happens. You, you want to see what happens. Feel it. God loves us enough to save us, to save our soul. Like, he would rather have us go into heaven maimed, losing, losing the very hands that, 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 that fondled the things that we should not be fondling. Like, right? Like, this is crazy. God loves us more than we love us. This is the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's not based on what you do. I pray that we would not think like Japheth. Uh, Jephthah, I pray that we would not think like him at all in the realms of, if I do this, then you will do that. That's an idol. That's idol talk. God has done. May we follow appropriately. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Just for us thinking through um, idolatry and um, seeing, man, so much of us in the people of Israel and yet at the same time we get to see... um, the beautiful work of your cross. Jesus, while you're on this earth, you're not just caring about the facade of anger, but like anger in our hearts or like lustful um, actions, but lust in our heart. Like you care about the roots. You want to, as C.S. Lewis said, work it backwards until we get to the, the core issue and, and then uh, create insane amounts of health. It's what we, we desire to be, God. We desire to be complete in you. I just pray for all those who are here who continue to think they can play the game of both idolatry and quote-unquote following Jesus, but that, that they and I, we would be all in. We would hate the idols the way you hate them because they bring us nothing but pain. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.